I'm very, I'm really looking forward to um, Rabbi Benayahu, who will be who will be giving um, the lecture next time. He's going to be speaking about Sephardi liturgy, and I. It was very important for me that he uh, participate in, you know, in the shiurim of the Chabura. His, first of all, he's a substantial Tamir Hacham, but his, uh, he was responsible for the Sefaradi Sidur that was published by Korin. Um, and it was published by Korin, I think, probably about six or seven years ago. And it is genuinely the best attempt that I have ever seen in one Sidur to comprise and to bring together all of the various Sfaradi uh, Minhagim, including Western Sfaradim. Um, and it's, it's just, uh, everything's in there. You, you really don't need another Sidur. So I, I mean, unless you're an Ashkenazi, then you need another Sidur, but <laughs> you're Sfaradi. it's a phenomenal Sidur, whether you use it actively or not, it's a phenomenal Sidur to have on your shelf because it also includes great deal of the halachot that have to do with all of the tefillah and various aspects and, and uh, approaches to the tefillah. So um, he's a, a good friend, somebody that I admire a great deal, and I'm very grateful that he's going to be teaching at the, you know, for us on the Habura. Um Yeah, so the Kol Yaakov Sidur that Koren uh, released is a Syrian Sidur, and the Sidur that Art Scroll released that was, that was Sephardi, uh, just because somebody's mentioning it in the chat, the, the Art Scroll is Sephardi Sidur, uh, but this, the Korin Sidur that Rav Hanan put out is the best that I've seen yet. You know, somebody will have to top him. Somebody will have to top him. In any case, let's get to what it is that we're dealing with tonight. Uh, as Sina said, this uh, is only one, one uh, you know, installment of hopefully a series that will continue over the the course of um, the curriculum various times in the in the in the Chaburah's, you know, presentation. Because for me, you know, the real, only reason there are three of these is because, thank goodness, Baruch Hashem, we have so many other teachers and so many other things to teach. And so, um, you know, we're, we're going to be bringing this in periodically, peppered, you know, throughout the, the, cur the curriculum. Because there is so much and it's very, very difficult to choose. And what I've decided to do with you tonight is likely something that many of you have learned before. But I... To me, this particular element that Harambam uh, addresses in his Pirusha Mishnah, particularly in the middle of his introduction to Perak Helek, which is the famous 10th Perak of Sanhedrin, which talks about Kol Yisrael Yeshleim Helek in which Harambam takes the opportunity to be able to teach Yesodot, um, various, many Yesodot in that, in that Hakdama. Um, this particular bit that we're going to be looking at tonight, for me, as a young student beginning to learn, was one of the first things that I learned, you know, in the Perusha Mishnah or the Hakdamot, the introductions of Harambam's, uh, to the, Harambam's introductions to various components of the Mishnah. To me, this was, <clears throat> this was golden. And the reason why it was golden for me is because I had experienced um, what he describes in this hakdama to be a complete disaster. Rambam does not pull his pull punches and he doesn't mince his words. One of the reasons why, you know, he's one of the many, many reasons why we love him so. But Rambam, when he recognizes something clearly and understands that it's emit, that it's true, 
He simply says it as it is without any qualms. And there are times where Harambam risked his life in order to be able to do that. You know, he wrote things in the Igeret Hashmad, in the Igeret Teman, which could have gotten him into tremendous trouble if it got out. And nonetheless, he risked his life in order to be able to teach it because he knew that it was true and he knew that it was, it was, it was life-giving and life-saving. And so, you know, there's nobody like him like that, really. There's nobody like him like that. And just his, the, his language and the way that he approaches it, he says it like it is. And sometimes it's really refreshing to be able to hear uh, things said like they are, especially when they are coming from the kolmos, from the quill of Harambam. So what we're going to look at tonight, like I said, is a fundamental idea. And it is important, but it is nonetheless one which till today, we find precisely the issues that he raises manifest. In my opinion, nothing that he raises in this particular uh, bit that we're going to read tonight is is old or not relevant anymore. All of it is absolutely astonishingly really relevant in the modern Jewish world. So uh, I think it's important for us to look at it, to see it. And with that, we'll close this portion of our of our looking at principles through the lens, through the eyes of Haramba. So without further you know, ado and introduction, we're going to be talking today about how Harambam teaches us to understand Midrashim of the Hachamim. How should we understand the Midrashim of Chazal, especially the Midrashim that seem to be quite outlandish or quite uh, not within the realm of reason and rational thought. And there are many such midrashim. The hachamim have a very good time talking about very wondrous, extraordinary uh, ideas, scenarios, situations in their glosses, right? In these midrashim, their, their, their glosses around uh, the mikra, right? The, the psukim or the stories of the Torah, in the Talmud, the way that they, you know, they use these fantastical stories sometimes in order to teach concepts. And what I want to look at is how it is that Harambam understands these things, and not only how he understands them, but how he teaches us that we need to understand them. And the way that he does it is he breaks, uh, he breaks it into three components. He says, look, there are basically three kinds of people. There is group A, group B, and group C. Group A understands the Midrashim in one way, Group B understands the Midrashim in another way, and they both are terrible. And then there's group C, and that's the way that we should be looking at it. So he makes it very, very simple. He breaks it up like that. Um, so we're going to look at it, and we're going to read it through. And, um, and I hope that this, you know, that this will be a, a steadfast source for all of you to be able to hold in your pocket and to always, always remember it, and to recognize that you can take it at its face value, as, as Harambam presents it, because that's how he means it. And it should be one of those things that is in your you know, Jewish principle wallet, so to speak, right? There are certain things you should always keep with you at all times. And so you think about it. This should be something that's always in your mind, because what will happen is, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying this directly, what will happen is you will hear people tell you otherwise. And they will be people that might be quite intimidating in establishing or insisting that it is otherwise. 
And I think it is important not just to have to argue with it in terms of rationality, but for you to be able to say, but Harambam doesn't think that way. Harambam teaches us otherwise. And this is you know, why I wanna be able to present it to you. So we're going to have a look at it. So I'm gonna share the screen and we'll read it together. And like I said, this is part of Harambam's introduction to Perichelik, which is the 10th chapter in Masichet Sanhedrin Mishnah. And we're coming at it in the middle, but he does this, you know, he kind of goes off on tangents and deals with certain things and then gets back into the main subject that he's talking about. This particular version is the translation of Rav Kafer, which is the best translation that I know. Um, and, and he gets into it and he says, he says as follows, he says, one thing that you need to know, you have to understand that when it comes to the words of the hachamim, there are three groups of people in terms of how it is that they relate to the words of the hachamim. Yeah, so uh, there are there are three different ways that he has found people relate. Now he's not saying this is a law. Right, that people have to relate this way. What he's saying is that I have found in my life that there are three kinds of people when it comes to uh, the relationship uh, to Chazal's writings. So he says, he goes right into it and he says, look, I'm talking about the first group. Let me describe for you the first group. The first group are the following kinds of people. You should know that the majority of Jews that I have come across are these kind. I've seen their works, their books. Yeah, so he's not just talking about the general population here. He's also talking about rabbis. And he says, look, I've seen the works that they've written. And I've heard about them. And, the, and what's unique about them, in other words, what is the one thing that, that essentially establishes them as all members of this one group, is that they they understand the words of the hachamim at face value. And they do not even attempt to explain the words of the hachamim. Now, what, I, what we mean by that is not that they read you know, a uh, sugya in the Gemara and do not attempt to explain the sugya. What Harambam is talking about, and you'll see that he gets into this more clearly, what he's saying is there are words of the Hachamim that require elucidation, that require explanation, because taking them at face value is problematic. Problematic in what terms? Problematic in terms of rationale and reason and basic realistic sense. And these people do not do that. They do not attempt to explain words of the hachamim that seem to require an explanation. Uh, instead, they refrain from doing so. And it's to the point that nasu itzlam kol hanimnaot mechoyuvea metziut velo asu ken ele mehamat sichlutam bechokmot berechokam in amadain. It's gotten to the point that when they speak about the words of the hachamim, that everything that is impossible realistically is normal, right? They make it so that everything that, that is impossible realistically in the normal world that as we understand it is real and normal. And that we should believe that we are living in some fantastical world in which these kinds of things happen. 
right? That the Chachamim knew something that we don't, or they they exist in, in a world that we don't. And the only reason they do that, says the Rambam, is because, and he says this is mehamat sikhlutam, it's because of their ignorance, right? Because of their lack of wisdom. Behochmot, in understanding the nature of wisdom, and from their distance from scholarly thought, right? So he's saying they read a ton of the words of, of Chazal, but they don't think in terms of scholarship. They haven't studied scholarly works. And not only that, they're not even whole developed people. To the point that if they were, they would realize themselves that there's something wrong here in terms of how it is that they're understanding the words of Ahabim. Not only that, they don't have anyone around them. In other words, they're in the environment in which they live or in which they, they engage is a self-reinforcing environment so that they it's impervious to anything external that might call their attention to the fact that they're misunderstanding the words of the Achamim. There's nobody outside that is going to awaken them. Literally, means to awaken them, to awaken them to this fact. So because they not only believe these things, because they not only uh, are, are distanced from scholarly thought, and not only are they engaged that way individually, they are reinforced that way collectively so that they live in groups in which there's no opportunity for there to be any kind of an awakening for them with regards to this. And therefore, because of all of this, they think then that the only thing there is to understand in the words of the Hachamim, which are quite wise, you know, the words of the Hachamim are filled with wisdom, they believe that the only thing to understand from the words of the Hachamim is what they get from it. In other words, whatever they get from the Hachamim is what the Hachamim are saying. So since they think this, that's what the Hachamim must mean. And what is the way that they think? Shehem kipshutam, that the Hachamim are talking very simply, directly, basically, that what they say is what they mean. And there is no underlying elements to them. There are no deeper concepts within their words that they are to be taken at face value. P, and this is, this is, by the way, you know, the case, even though in the words of the Hachamim that he's referring to, right, if you are to take their words at face value, the simple meaning of their words, you end up finding that they talk about the strangest things. I mean, it's really strange stuff. To the point that if you go and say the things that the Achamim say to average people, certainly to you know the individuals, if you go and say, hey, you know, Achamim say that such and such is, is, the, is true or such and such is the situation, they would be astonished that, that the Hachamim could say such a thing. How could it be that there's a human being in the world that actually thinks these things? And think that they're real and true. Well, God be out of your mind. All the more so that these things not only are seen as true, but that they are favorable things, right? That they're, they're recognized as being good, nice things. 
right? So understand what we're talking about over here. We're talking about elements within the Talmud, within the Midrash, that the Achamim speak, like the Rambam says, divarim min hazarut, right? On their face value, they seem to be the strangest of things. And so that's a signal, because what Rambam is saying, if you read the words of the Achamim, and they are things that if you were to say to any average human being, they would think that it was the strangest of things, or think that it was odd, or that it was unrealistic. Those are the things that beckon you to say, well, there's something underlying over here. And to look at them at face value and take them at face value is problematic. What's the problem? Sarambam gets into that. And he says, look, Hakat Hazo, this group of people, Rahmanut uh, al-Sikhlutam, I love Rambam's term. He uses this term more than once. He says, you know, mercy on their ignorance. I mean, really, there's, they need mercy on their, on their stupidity. Because you know what they're doing? By taking the words of the hachamim literally in these instances, what they think they're doing is exalting the hachamim. In what way? They believe, look, if the hachamim say that, you know, uh, Esther, Esther was green or Vashti grew a tail or, you know, there was a, you know, these giant frogs that, you know, size of dinosaurs that were walking through Egypt during the plague of, of frogs. Uh, and we do not take it as they mean it. We're belittling the words of the Hachamim. And we are showing a lack of faith in the words of the Hachamim. And it's very important because what it means is, is that the key to this group is faith. And the more you can believe in the more outlandish things, right? The more outlandish things they are and that you are willing to, have, to, to believe in, the more religious you are, the better you are. And so the hachamim are testing you, right? They're, they're putting these things out and saying, listen, we're telling you this happened. If you don't believe us, then there's something wrong with your faith and your religiosity. And what Harambam is saying is the exact opposite is true. It's completely misunderstanding Achamim. So that these people believe that by taking the words of the Achamim that are quite strange at face value is exalting them because it shows how much I trust them and believe them no matter what they say. And, in Amber, and what the problem is what they're really doing, says Harambam, is really what you're doing is you're downgrading the hachamim terribly. You are pushing them down into the lowest of the low. You don't realize that it's the most disrespectful thing to do to the hachamim. It's not just no harm, no foul. Look, you know, you want this guy to, not, to believe in that. He wants to believe in it. Let him believe in it. Harambam is saying no. It is downright disrespectful to the hachamim and it belittles them to the lowest levels. Tachlita shiflut means the lowest levels. They don't realize that that's what they're doing. They think they're doing something good and instead what they're doing is something terrible to the hachamim. And then look at the Rambam's language. He says, Hai Hashim, which is the language of an oath, right? He's saying, by God, Literally is what it means. By the life of God, right? You can't really say the life of God, but saying like, as God is living, right? By the living God is what he's saying. So he's invoking very serious terminology over here because he could have left that out. He didn't have to say Hayashim. He says, by God, 
I'm telling you, almost as though he's saying, I swear to God, I'm telling you, ki hazo, this group, me'abedim hadar Torah. They're taking all of the splendor of the Torah and throwing it out. They're destroying it. Umachshichim zohara. And they're darkening its radiance. Ve'osim Torah Tashem. And they are taking the Torah of God, and making it the opposite of what it's meant to be. How do I mean? He says, God said about his Torah, about the wisdom of his Torah, people will hear all of these hukim, and they will say about the Torah, He's quoting a pasuk. He's not quoting the whole pasuk. The pasuk, you could see here in the footnote, is in Devarim Dalidvav, in which Moshe Rabbeinu was talking to the people, and he's saying, these mitzvot, this Torah that I'm giving you, that you will do, you will keep and you will do, people will hear them and see them and say, Rak am hacham vinabon hagoya gadol This great nation, gadol, hagoya gadol, is rak hacham vinabon. They're only wise and understanding people. And what you're going, what they're doing, the Rambam says, is doing, they're doing the exact opposite because they believe this stuff and talk about this stuff in the way that they do. Hakat hazo, this group, you know what they do? Dorshin mishpete divre hachamim. They say about the words of Chazal that if people were to hear this, right, the other nations, right, were to hear us talk this way and say that our rabbi said this, he plays on the pasuk and says the opposite. They weren't going to say that we're a wise and understanding great nation. They'll say we're an ignorant, stupid, petty little nation. That's a pretty big thing. He says, you know, and the truth of the matter is, I hear Darshanim do this all the time. You know, these rabbis that are Doresh, they give sermons, and I hear them do this. They, start, they teach the people what they themselves don't understand. They have no business speaking. And that's not just me. Rambam says that. He goes, He goes, I mean, if somebody make them shut up, they don't understand what they're saying. Which is a pasuk from Yov. He says, if only somebody would make them go quiet, and then they would be considered wise people. At least they would know not to talk when they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, at least, you know, they could say, I mean, God forbid they should say, look, we don't know what the hachamim mean over here. That's okay to say also. We don't really know what the what the explanation is of these words. I mean, they're very strange. Must be that the Achamim are trying to say something over here. We don't get it. Uh, so we don't understand. We're not going to talk about it. But instead, what happens is they think that they understand what the Achamim are saying. And then they go further and they start to teach the people what they think they understood. And but it's not what the Achamim said. So nobody's teaching the words of the Achamim. And I see this happen, he says, in front of tons of people. I have a room full of people and they tell all the people this. 
Bidrashot, Brachot, they go through the Gemaran, Brachot, and there are all kinds of, you know, things like this in Masechet Brachot. And in Perek and, you know, which is why Arambam's putting it over here. Because in Perek the Hachamim, in the Gemara, the Hachamim talk a lot about these kinds of things because you're dealing with esoteric metaphysical ideas. And because they are abstract, sophisticated ideas, they do not simply put them out directly. They use parable in order to teach the concepts. And so the parable is put out, but the people don't understand the insights and the ideas that are meant to be gleaned from the parable. And instead what they do, they teach the parable as though it is the, the teaching itself, which he'll say in more detail in a moment. So he says we do this, but I hear, I hear that what they do, these darshanim, is they teach these things word for word as they're written in the Gemara, as though that's a teaching. So that's the first group. That's the first group. Then there's another group, says the Rambam. The other group are the same as the first group in that they take the words of the Hachamim at face value. It's just how they respond to them, you know, respond to it. So the first group takes the words of the Hachamim at face value and throws all of their faith in these, in these words as though these words are what the Hachamim want us to get and understand. And it doesn't matter how outlandish it is, doesn't matter how strange it is, we are taking it completely as it is. But we're not trying to understand it because there's nothing to understand. The Hachamim just want us to show our faith that we should accept whatever it is that they say, no matter how strange. The second group also takes the hachamim at face value, but they look at it and say, there's something wrong with the hachamim. So we're going to reject the hachamim because they say such strange things. So the second group is this. Gamhem rabim, there's plenty of them too. So it's basically, you know, 50% of the people are in one and 50% of the other. <laughs> there's probably more in the first group than the second group, but there's tons of them. Hemotam hachamim, these are people who see the words of the Hachamim or have heard the words of the Hachamim and they understand it in its simple way, in its simple way, as the Hachamim said it. Same thing. They believe that the Hachamim genuinely meant what they said as they said it. And therefore, this group Zilzilubo, they belittle it, viganuhu, and they disparage it, vehashvu muzar, and they think what is strange, masheen muzar, what really is not that strange when you understand what it is. And they mock the words of the hachamim frequently. Laitim kerobot means frequently. They make it a habit of mocking the words of the Hachamim and the Talmud. They think, of course, because they're scholars and intellectuals, that they're more understanding than the Hachamim were. And the Hachamim were primitive. They think that they are more clean or clear of thought. And that the Hachamim, really poor Hachamim, were not particularly intelligent. Hasredat, they're lacking knowledge. Sichlim they are ignorant about all of the nature of reality. 
They live in some fantastical dream world. The Hachamim is what these people say. They really don't get it. Chazal, we're out of touch with reality. We're living in, you know, a very nice, uh, you know, extraordinary world in their minds. Most people, interestingly, who think this way, think they're doctors. Right? In other words, in, in the Rambam's time, the high intellectual was a doctor, you know. And so they think they're doctors. They, they think that they know about the astronomy and, you know, the way that the, the, the heavens work and, and they've got all of this down. Because in their imaginary minds, believe, they think that they're big, big wise philosophers. They're a bunch of intellectuals, you know, academics. It's a philosophy, and the truth of the matter is, the Rambam is saying how far they really are from the genuine humanness of the true philosophers, of the truly wise men. I mean, I'm sorry to say, he says they're they're more ignorant than the first group, and more naive than the first group. They are really a cursed group, actually. Says Rambam. Why? Because in their arrogance and their self, uh, you know, their self endorsement of their own intellect, they have they have reached out and attacked exalted people, high thinking, unique and special people. And everybody who's an intelligent individual recognizes their intelligence. Now I point out often, you know, the people that that make fun of, and still there are these, you know, it's like we're reading this. This is nine hundred years old, and it is literally could be read word for word in terms of how it is that we deal with these things today with people. And it's amazing because I always say to people, you know, you read the Talmud and you look at the sophisticated logic in the legal discussions of the Hachamim, and then all of a sudden you go into some fantastical story, right, that they tell in the middle. And you think like, what were they schizophrenic? You know, like what? what all, and one, all of a sudden, they're able to have the most sophisticated, cutting logic, and all of a sudden, they go off and talk about you know these fantastical ideas. And you think that what they had a lapse of judgment all of a sudden, like they did just jump into to to fairy tales, like Mary Poppins jumping into the pavement. Elu Harambam says, you know, you have to recognize. He says these are people that brought themselves to a point that they know how to write. They know how to write about metaphysics in ways that speak both to the to the general public and to the hachamim themselves. And he's going to explain what that means in a moment. And they would do well, these people, to, to set themselves aside and start to look at the practical implications of philosophy, if they were to study philosophy appropriately. Then they would clearly understand the hachamim. They wouldn't have a problem. They would realize that there are parables. 
And that parables and metaphor and analogy are extremely powerful and potent tools to teach sophisticated metaphysical ideas, philosophical ideas. And then they would get what the Hachamim were saying. But they unfortunately do not. Because their arrogance blocks them. So those are two groups. Both groups recognize the Hachamim and their words at face value. The first group takes them at their word and exalts them, thinking that they've understood them. The second group takes them at their word and degrades them, thinking that they're idiots. And those are the majority of people, says Harambam. Now, the interesting thing is, and before I go on, right, one could very well ask and say, you know, why would, knowing that this is what the majority of people are going to do, I mean, if this is the way that it's running for Harambam, you could imagine that that's the way that it was running for the Hakamim themselves. And it's the way that it's running today, because it's part of human nature. It's the way that we relate to these things, en masse. So why would the Hachamim do that? And one reason that the Hachamim do that, which I believe is a central reason, is precisely to keep those people out. In other words, if you read what it is that we're saying and you think the way that you, either of these two people think, then it's not for you. Because what we're putting forth in these parables are the most precious stones of Torah. And so the casing of the gems needs to be something that is only enticing for those who can value the gems. But if those people will not value the gems, then the casing will, itself will repel them in various ways. Some will exalt the casing as though it's all there is and they'll forget they won't even know that there's a gem inside. And some will look at the casing as though it's to be thrown back into the rubbish. And that's fine. Because the only ones who should get through the casing into the gem are the people that recognize that there must be a gem. And that, of course, is the third group. Him, and here he uses the same term again. Him, hi Hashem, he says, by God, I swear to God, you can't even call them a group. Because there's not enough of them. There's so few. They're very few, exceedingly few. You can't even call them a group. You can call them a group in the same way in the same way that you could talk about the sun as a type of entity. Of course, Harambam didn't know that the sun is just a star. So he's exposing himself here a bit, but you know, it took us a long time to figure that out. So what he was saying was that the sun, what else is there like the sun? There's only one kind, of, there's only one of it. There's no type, it's not a type of thing. Yeah, we know today that it is actually a type of thing, but you get what it is that he was saying. Who are these people that we call the third group in this minor little group? These are people that are clear on the fact that the Hachamim were great. And the, the genuine value or the goodness of their understanding. And 
they recognize that in the wholeness of their words, right? In other words, in the presentation of their words, in the broad whole framework of their words, there was tremendous wisdom to be found, exceedingly true, right? Meaning truths that were high truths. Even though these truths are few and far between. Literally is what that means. Me'atim means few, mefuzari means scattered about. They're few and far between. In various places, the gems are buried in various places in their works. When you begin to discover those things, you see the wholeness of their thought and their, their person, for that matter. And the level to which they understood the truth. Not only that, they knew full well what was realistic and wasn't realistic, what was rational and what wasn't rational. What was what had to be true and real and what was not. And not only that, this third group recognizes that the Hachamim were not talking frivolous things. They weren't just telling fantastical stories. Further, it is clear to this group of people. And this is key, Peshat Vesod. That in the words of the Hachamim, there is simple face value things, and there are deeper, literally sod means secrets, right? They have secrets that they share, but they, of course, do not share the secrets publicly and openly. They hide them, and they present them in riddles, which is, of course, an age-old mode of wise people sharing wisdom with other wise people so that the people that don't get it won't. And so the way that they give it over is to clothe it, to wrap it in something else. That to those who don't realize that it is wrapping get distracted by the wrapping. But those who understand that it is indeed wrapping attempt to unwrap it. And these people realize that everything the Hachamim said that seems irrational, or for that matter, impossible, all of those things that the Hachamim say in that manner are riddles and parables. Indeed, that is the way of the great, the great wise ones. The great wise ones talk often in riddle to other wise ones. Therefore, the wisest of all, King Solomon, opened his book of Proverbs saying, this is to understand allegory and metaphor. The words of the hachamim and their riddles. 
הוא כבר ידוע אצל חכמי הלשון. And it's very well known among the hachamim who study linguistics, language. כי חידה הם, what is a riddle? A riddle is דברים שעניינם בסודם ולא בפשטם. It is a, an aspect of rhetoric, it's an aspect of language, an aspect of speaking, in which the core or the essence is in the secret behind the presentation. It is hidden within the presentation. It's not in the simple words that are given, but in the meaning of the words that is deeper. As uh, Samson said to his friends, I'm going to tell you a riddle. You must know that among the wisest of the hachamim, of the scholars, when they speak in, um, about the lofty ideas that they need to teach, they always do it in riddle. Because to speak about it in a straightforward manner, A, takes a long time, because you have to deal with a whole bunch of details that could be understood by the, the wise person who's hearing them from his own sense and his own mind. And also, it gives over ideas in layers that can be unpacked appropriately without losing anything in the translation. So it, 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 it houses ideas so that the fullness of the ideas, the robust element of the ideas can remain intact. And like I said, so the people who aren't supposed to understand them don't. And they just read fairy tales. But of course, anybody who knows about fairy tales recognizes that fairy tales always have something to teach. So he says that the King Solomon in Proverbs and in the Song of Songs and and parts of Kohelet did this. He did this in what he wrote. Why should it be strange in our eyes to recognize this is what the Achamim are doing and that our job is to try and answer the riddles, to understand the riddles and to take them out from their simple meaning and, and unpack them so that we can understand them and recognize the scholarship behind them and the wisdom behind them and to bring them into a wholeness within everything else that we've learned from the Torah and the holy writings. And these bits are the deeper bits that we need to be able to dive in and understand. I mean the Achanim themselves do this with the actual psukim of the, of the books of the Bible. Not necessarily the five books, they do, but they do this with the actual psukim of some of the ketubim, like Divrei Yamim and Iov and so on. They also look at these things as psukim themselves as being concealing deeper ideas. And that's the truth, that's the way it's supposed to be. For example, we find about the pasuk that speaks about uh, David's general, Benayahu. We're talking about Benayahu, right? Hanan Benayahu. All right, so Benayahu, David's general, nice little synchronicity over there. David's general, Benayahu ben Oyada, it says about him that he was a Benish High. You, know, you wonder where the Benish High got his name. Benish High called himself interesting. People don't realize, I mean, people do know this, but 
the general population doesn't know this. Why did the Benish High call him, call him? Why do we call him the Benish High? We call him the Benish High not because that was not his name. He wrote a book called the Benish High. As a matter of fact, every single book that he wrote was taken from uh, uh, ways of that this individual, Benayahu, the general of David, was described in the Pasuk. And the reason why the Benish Hai wrote or named his books after Benayahu, Ben Yoyada, Benish Hai, Rav Pe'ali, Mechab these are all terms that were used to, the, to talk about or to, to uh, give attributes to this general of David Amelech was because the Benish Hai believed that he was a Gilgul of Benayahu. And he writes explicitly. He believed that he was a Gilgul of Benayahu, Ben Yoyada. And since he believed that he was a Gilgul of Benayahu, Ben Yoyada, he named all of his books according to the psukim that spoke about Benayahu. And one of the things that it says about Benayahu was that he was a Ben Ishai, which literally means he was the son of a living man. So Hazal say, I mean, everybody's a son of a living man at one point or another. What kind of thing is that? So they say in the Gemara, yeah, but he was considered alive even after he died. And so they go into all of this, you know, this discussion of what it means to be what who he was and the type of life that he lived and so on and so forth. So they, they talk about this pasuk dealing with Benayahu ben Yoyada. And it says, he, he killed, he, he was able to, to, to smite the two Ariels of Moab, right? The two great sons of Moab. Kulo mashal. The Rambam says it's all mashal. It's all a parable. When it talks about those things, what was he actually doing? Well, he didn't kill anybody. It's talking about his Torah, say Chazal. Then it says he went into a pit and slayed a, a lion. It's also a mashal. Also, when he was at war with Plishtim, he said, if somebody could go get me the water from the well of Plishtim over there. He wasn't talking about water, say Chazal. He was talking about Torah. Okay, whatever it was. The point is that Harambam is showing that even the Hachamim looked at the Pesukim of the Torah this way. As a matter of fact, all of these are taken from Divrei Yamim Chronicles. And there's a strong tradition among the Hachamim that a great deal of the Book of Chronicles is to be understood not at face value. That it is essentially almost entirely parable. So to the entire book of Iyov, one of the Hakamim said, Mashal Haya, that the whole book was a parable. Didn't ever really happen. It's one of the opinions. Right? They didn't explain what the mashal was, like what the what the what the the lesson of the parable was. They just said it was a parable. So to the dead of Yehezkel, right? This this the, the, the bones that Ezekiel prophecies over that get up from the dead, very famous uh, uh, part of Yehazkel, it's one of the haftarot you know, that we read on the Mu'adim. Amar had me mashal haya. Some of the hachamim say the whole thing was a mashal, never really happened. Rabim Many, many, many such things. So now listen to what Harambam says. Right? This is, he's talking to you. So listen carefully. He says now, im atah now, if you, dear reader, if you uh, identify yourself as being one of a member of one of the first two groups that I mentioned, and be honest, if you identify yourself with being one of the first two groups that I mentioned, don't read anymore. 
Put the book down. He goes, don't read my words on anything that has to do with these issues. Just stop reading now. And he says, why? He says, because it's really not for you. Mat'im means it does, it's not fit for you. None of it. Mi'uma means none of it is fit for you. It doesn't belong to you. Not only does it not is it not fit for you, it will harm you. And you will hate it. Because what it will do to you is shatter your entire world. And you will resent what I'm writing. Because of what it will do to your belief system. And to what you understand. And it will harm you. So put the book down. Now, of course, what Arapam is doing over here, all you need to do in order to be able to get a person to keep reading is tell them to stop reading. Right. So what he's saying is you need to understand what it is you're getting yourself into here. And if you cannot relinquish the paradigm of thought that I have just described in the first two groups that I spoke about, this is going to be a serious problem for you. So you're going to need to step out of the paradigm, which is much easier said than done. Because when you have to step out of a paradigm of thought, you do not change what you think, you change how you think. And one of the most difficult things that a human being does, if they can, is to change how we think. Changing what we think about is relatively easy. How we think, excruciatingly difficult. I mean, one of the logistical problems is, is that, you know, you think with the thing that you think with. And so to change how you think with the thing that you think with, which is thinking how you think, is a bit of a problem. And that's one of the reasons why, this is very important, it's one of the reasons why at the very beginning, Harambam writes about the first group, he says, En mi ram. There's nobody to wake them up because they make themselves impervious to external thought by reinforcing their ideas within each other over and over and over again and closing their ranks in their societies and the way that they live so that they don't have to think about anything else. They can accept the words of the hachamim as is and reinforce with each other that this is the way that we think and lock everything else out. So what Harambam is saying is, I'm genuinely saying to you, you will resent what I'm writing because it will break your house down. It will shatter your windows and rattle your walls. I mean, you know, speaking like a doctor, Harambam says, when a person has gotten used to eating food that is bad, for you. They eat junk food. When you want to give them a salad, they can't handle it. They look at it as the most repulsive food. What is he going to do? It's only going to cause him damage. And he's going to hate it. He's going to resent it. This is what I get for dinner? What am I, a rabbit? 
דבר, אותם שהורגלו באכילת הבצלים. I mean, you see what the Torah says about those people who got used to eating garlic and onions and fish all the time when they were fed the man from heaven. They said, נפשנו קצה בלחם הקלוקל. Our souls are disgusted from this cheap, you know, nothing, nothing bread. There's nothing to it. It's like flakes. Now, says the Rambam, if you are one of the, the, the third group, and, and you know any time that you come across one of the words of the Hachamim or the, the presentation of the Hachamim, that the intellect is used to uh, rejecting or distancing because it doesn't make sense, or because it's not rational, and instead what you do is you pause at those words, and you recognize that it is begging you to understand it deeper, because it's a riddle, umashal, or an allegory, and you stay in the presence of your heart, and the strain of thought, you delve into deep thought to try and understand what the answer to the riddle is. And you sit and worry. Literally, doeg means worry. But not worry in the sense of fear, but you, you are constantly concerned. You can't rest because you need to figure out what the truth of this, this, this statement means or this idea means. And the right idea that is meant to be presented here or that they're trying to tell you here as you're trying to understand the straight and true ideas that are being put forth to you he goes well you guys uh, contemplate my words you will find benefit of course if God wills it Now I'll talk about what I wanted to, says the Rambam. <laughs> he goes into to discuss. So, it's fairly straightforward. Like I said, the Rambam pulls no punches. But I believe that this is one of the most fundamental points in Judaism, in understanding, you know, if we recognize that the Hachamim are our guides, they're our teachers, they are the ones, for all intents and purposes, that formed Judaism. They are the ones that set the frameworks and parameters for what we call Judaism. We need to recognize this element because it is all over their words. And the things that Harambam spoke about in the first and second groups still manifest today all over the place. And what he's saying is, it's important that we come to that awareness. We understand that this is the way people tend to look at the words of the Hachamim. And this is the way that we are meant to look at the words of the Hachamim. And in doing so, we genuinely come to understand the deep elements of the Torah, what Harambam calls the secrets of the Torah. Right? These are the This is where you find the secrets of the Torah. Secret meaning deeper, more uh, abstract elements. And by abstract, I don't mean non-practical. I mean, these are things that we need to be able to bring into our everyday lives and live them and part of our, 
but in terms of being 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 more sophisticated in, in what it is that we understand, how it is that we understand. And this is something that really Harambam talks about. The whole opening of the Morin de Bukhim deals with this, in where he says, just because you think as a human being doesn't mean that you think correctly. And being able to train ourselves to think correctly is itself a tremendous work. And it's not simple and it's not easy. It's quite, it requires, requires a tremendous amount of training and rigor before we're able to genuinely think in the ways that the Hachamim need us to think or expect us to think when talking about these metaphysical issues. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's it. So what we put forth in, this, in, these, uh, in these points, in these you know, the three installments, is we spoke about uh, the Chukim and the Mishpatim, how it is that we're supposed to relate to the Mitzvot. We spoke about the Midrashim. And, uh, and what do we do in the first one? That one was, uh, was it not Mitzvot means to an end? No, that was the second one. That was the second one. The first one, what did I do? I forgot what I did. Okay. <laughs> In any case, it's a good thing that it was recorded. Yeah. What was it? Yes, I think it was Mitzvot. That was the first one, yeah. And you spoke about sacrifices, which is part of the ah, discussion that we had in yes. the WhatsApp group. Right. Right. Yeah, correct. Thank you so, so much, Rob. Uh, Alrighty. As usual. Good. Uh, do you have time for any questions or yes. you got a hard stop? No, we're good. Okay, awesome. Anybody got any questions for the Rav? You can put Jack. Put your hands up. There we go. Rav Jack. Apologies. Rav Jack Cohen. Was your hand up by mistake? No, it was a clap. Oh, it was a clap. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Anybody else? Ryan. Ryan's raised his hand. Ryan from Los Angeles. Great to see you, brother. Shalom, shalom. Ah, Mukhtar Betif Eret. Beautiful. Yes. Do you think do you think the Rambam does this form of communicating information anywhere in the Mishnah Torah? Does he give any parables? Anywhere? Does the Rambam do this, you're saying? In the Mishnah Torah, yeah. I know he does I don't know. think I don't think that Harambam did this in the way that he's saying. In other words, what the Rambam is saying is when you see things that are outlandish, right, that do not make sense. That's where you have to pause and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something buried in here. The Rambam doesn't really do that in the Mishneh Torah. The Rambam speaks quite blatantly in the Mishneh Torah. What he does in the Moreh Nebuchim is he doesn't speak about things that are outlandish, but he says that the opening of the Moreh explicitly says, I'm burying things in here. Yes. And yeah, so there, you're going to need to be able to study it re recognizing that, but it's different then what the Hachamim did. And the Harambam, it's interesting because what Harambam wanted to do was he wanted to elucidate. He actually wanted to write a full book explaining all the Midrashim. And he realized, well, if I do that, that I'm negating everything the Hachamim wanted to do. It took him some you know, point when he actually sat down to try and do it, that he realized it wasn't the thing to do. And he writes, interestingly here, later on in this, in this introduction, he says, I'm going to write a book in where I explain all the Midrashim and so on. And the Nebuot, and then in the beginning of the Moren de Bukhim, he said, look, I said that I was going to do this, but I realized it's not a good idea. <laughs> it's not a good idea because there's a reason why the Hakamim did what they did. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it a bit different. I'm not going to talk about these, these fantastical parables, but I am going to embed it into what I say so that it's going to flash at you here and there, and you're going to need to be able to recognize it that way. But I, I don't think that he did the same thing in the Mishneh Torah, because his intention in the Mishneh Torah was genuinely to be read by everyone. It was meant to be, be read by all people. And, he, and the Moreh Nebuchim was not meant to be read by all people. He says explicitly, he goes, I don't care if I write this book for one person. That's, you know, it's enough. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Anybody else? You can just unmute if you don't want to put your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this mode of thinking of if if you encounter something completely irrational, like that, logically doesn't make sense, um, you should dismiss it um, or at least rethink it. Does this apply to Chumash? Surely not. Or Sorry. Chumash, or maybe there are moments where. Chumash. So Chumash, there is a cloud with Chumash and the and the Torah. I imagine you mean Torah. Yeah. I don't see who's asking the question, but essentially um, we have a cloud with the Torah that in Mikra that a pasuk does not ever leave or is not ever to be you know removed from completely its simple meaning. That does not mean its literal meaning. It means its simple meaning. And just because something is not as my my uh, you know, a scientist that I quite admire, um, Donald Hoffman, said, I just did a, I had a discussion with him on my podcast, which I haven't released yet, but I will, and I'll let you know about it when it happens. But I had a discussion with him, and he writes in his, in, in his book, which I'm not going to go into what it's about now, but one line that he writes, which I think is a phenomenal line, which is absolutely true, is just because something is not literal does not mean that it is not serious and important. There are things that may not be literal, but are nonetheless very serious and important. And when we say not literal, it doesn't mean that it's imaginary, right? There, there are various levels of how it is that this particular reality must be understood. So on the one hand, there are definitely miracles that the Torah presents, and Harambam deals with those. And he recognized that miracles are things. He doesn't say, look, they're not miracles, they're miracles. But Harambam prefers to understand miracles in the most natural of terms. Yeah, so if there is a possibility for it to happen in the natural sense, and it absolutely happens in the natural sense, even if it's in some way that we don't necessarily understand, but it's on an atomic level or whatever it is, that's the way that Harambam understands miracles. And miracles are part of Torah. But if there is an opportunity to explain a pasuk of the Torah in simple, logical, rational terms, as opposed to non-rational, non-logical terms, you always choose the rational, logical terms to, to explain it in. And then there are other things. There are things that may be seen as like, you know, prophecy is not something that, you know, prophecy, the concept of prophecy itself, we accept something that occurs in the world and miracles, things that occur in the world. But when the hachamim talk about stories in the way that they do about their lives, their circumstances or situations that occurred in the Torah that are not explained that way in the Torah, we don't, we don't look at those things and say, okay, we have to take it at face value in the way that the hachamim say. Yeah? We have, to, we, we have to think about, well, what are the hachamim trying to tell, teach me? What are they trying to explain to me over here? Thank you, Rob. Uh, final question, and then we'll call it a night. Anybody? 
and see your hand up. Betsy. Thank you. That was really, really good. I just wanted to ask that if we read the Midrashim in this way, how do we know that we've come to the correct understanding? That's an excellent question. Then I'm glad you yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that. It's a very important question. It's, you know, this is why I was mentioning about what the Arambam says at the beginning of the morning in the Bukhi. It does require scholarship in order to be able to understand the Midrashim of the Hachamim. So it can't just be like, oh, okay, I'm going to read this Midrash and I'm going to see what I think it means. And if it sounds good to me, it's good. It requires a, a reading and knowledge about the, of the Hachamim in general, right? So you have to have an idea of how it is the Hachamim think and what are the concepts that they put forward and build a framework out of that. And when you are within that framework, you can look at these things and say, well, how does that fit into the framework? And what aspects of this may plug in to the framework that I've, I've come to understand? And the reason why that's important is because we don't look at these things as being isolated ideas. There is a system of thought among the Hachamim. There's a framework of thought among the Hachamim. And the more I have clarity about that framework and system, the more I have an opportunity to get to the bottom of the riddles and to be able to understand them. So do you ever know emphatically that you've got it right? Not necessarily, but when you know everything clicks and it happens, right? When this, when you, when you get a midrash, you have an experience. I mean, there's definitely experience where all of a sudden all the pieces start to come together and it broadens and expands. You see, okay, well, all right. I mean, I mean, it may not be exactly this, but this is a good working definition. And the reason why it's a good working definition because everything is connecting and it's working well. And there's a consistent definition that runs through it. And not only that, but what I've understood from the midrash deepens what it is that I've understood, broadens what it is that I've understood. Those are good Simanim, those are good signs that you've got a sense of what it is that the Hachamim were meaning to say. Does that make sense? Does it help? Yeah. So that that is, is an indication that you have a sense of what it is that you're talking about. But if you cannot take a definition of a Midrash and insert it back, so that's why it's very important also, by the way, to recognize, like I was saying before, the Hachamim will throw Midrashim in the middle of a halachic discussion. You know, they're talking about uh, the Gida Nashe, and all of a sudden they go into a discussion about the relationship between Esav and Yaakov and Esav's ideas and what he wanted to do and how he felt about his mother and all that. What does that have to do with the Gida Nashe? Well, I mean, if I recognize that the whole Gida Nashe problem had to do with this whole wrestling match between Esav and Yaakov, so then the philosophical ideas that connect to the halachic ones must be intertwined, and I need to be able to understand them in a holistic way. And Chazal absolutely understood and uh, understood Torah and understood the concepts of their world in holistic fashion. They didn't look at objects and then try and break the objects down into their part, part you know, their, their constituent parts. They did that, but they always plugged it back into the whole, which is why, why a, a tractate of the Talmud is called a masechet. Literally masechet means a weave. It's literally what the word means. And so what they do in the Talmud is that they weave these threads together. And so if I cannot understand how the threads of this Midrash weave into the whole tapestry that the Hachamim are putting to me, if it doesn't work that way in my understanding of it, then drop it. Because it's not, it's not, guide, it's not moving in the direction that it's meant to be or that it's meant to be presented or understood. 
that should be part of how it is that I, I sense that I've got a sense of, of, of understanding and truth here in terms of what it is they're saying. That helps so much. Thank you. Very good question. Thank you all. Margaret so, has a so question. Much. Ah, sorry, Margaret. But you're on mute. I think yeah. you're on mute. Yeah, you Let me. There In the story of Yaakov and Esav meeting, and the Midrash says that Yaakov's neck was turned to marble. Right. I, I burst out laughing because I, all I could think of was Greek mythology. And for the life of me, I couldn't quite understand how, how our teachers how they could come up with this. And according to this, if I want to be in the third group of people who are really seeking, I have to find a reason why on earth. And so I should- Why would Hazal say that Esav's neck turned to marble? Yes. What are they trying to tell me? And that, by the way, you know, you'll hear me if you listen to old classes, Oftentimes when I bring out a midrash, and I do very often, right? When I was teaching Navi and I'm, you know, I'm teaching other things, I'll bring out a midrash. And I will often say, whether you take this literally or not, and I'm only doing that to placate the first group, right? Which I shouldn't, based on Hanumbam. Every time I read this, I remember I don't have to placate the first group. But what I say is whether you take this literally or not, the point is, what were the hachamim meaning to teach us by mentioning it? Why exactly. are you saying it? And it's very important to always think that way and to understand. Because if you don't see people's necks turning to marble in the street, which I mean, you know, if you do, let me know. We can talk and figure out what to do with you. But if that's not happening in normal situations, you have to understand the hachamim, of course, recognize that you understand that, that doesn't happen in normal situations, that that is an outlandish claim. And that if they're saying that, then they are trying to tell you something deeper, right? What does that do to the teeth? Right? And it's not that Esav's neck turned to marble. Yeah. It's Yaakov's neck turned to marble because Esav wanted to bite him. Yeah, yeah. So that there was a whole there's all of this stuff that's going on in there. What is that? What is that? You know, and what happens to his esophagus and trachea when that happens? Is that how far does the marble go? You know, again, all of that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um Rob, do we have the time for one last question? Final, final, final okay. for Alexander. Alexander, go ahead. Hi, hi, thank you. I was learning the Gemara and after Alicia ben died, that Rabbi Meir made fire rise from the grave. I mean, do you know how, how, how would you interpret that Gemara? I could interpret I, I that Gemara, but I'm not going to do that. I'll, say, I'll mention one thing now, but I don't want to start getting to every Midrash Chazal, <laughs> like going through what is the Dachami meant. Clearly, clearly, right, the, when it says that there was smoke coming out of the grave, it's indicating that where there's smoke, there's fire. And fire is always representative of dinim, of judgment. And so there was real severe judgment that was going on for this individual. And so Rabbi Meir was saying, I'm going to get him out of it. I'm going to take care of that and make sure that that stops. And that's how it's, it, it develops. Yeah, that's, that's the idea behind it. It's not talking about, you know, what is in common knowledge, hell. Yeah. It's anytime that we see fire and those kinds of things. It's, it's an image. It's an image. It's saying, look, this is, what, this is what it was like. Might as well have been smoke coming out of his grave. May have been even that, you know, they saw some kind of stuff coming out of his grave, whatever it is. But that's the idea behind it. Righty. 
We good? I he's muted. I, we can't hear you, Alex. You're muted. He's muted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Good. Okay. Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much, Rav. Thank you all for being here. Looking Thank forward you. to seeing you next week with Rav Hanan Ben Ayago. Don't miss it. Don't miss Rav Hanan. The Sephardi liturgy and Siddur. So really, really looking forward to that and uh, upcoming new series with Professor Zvi Zohar as well on Hacham Yisrael Moshe Hazan. We've got good stuff. We've got good stuff. Indeed. indeed. Right. Thank you all very much. Catch you all soon. Good night. Good day, wherever you are. Ralph, thank you.